good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I do thank you for joining us. Uh, we're coming to you over EWTN and uh, to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in uh, Central Ohio. So thank you for joining us. One of the goals for this program for the last couple of years has been to focus on the beauty and the joy of Scripture uh, and to become deep in Scripture. And as I've often said in this program, I want to make sure we make a distinction because the idea of be, being deep in Scripture does not necessarily mean an idea of Scripture alone because the importance of, of understanding and studying and praying the Scripture in the midst of the context in which we received it from the teacher that Christ gave us and that is the church. And so we'll, particularly today, on uh, the guests that I have on today's program and the text that we've chosen, I think, will certainly emphasize the need for understanding the text of Scripture, not only in the context of the book in which it was written and the context within the entire canon of Scripture, but also in the context of the culture in which that letter was written, in the time it was written, what did St. Paul understand as a background to what he was writing, the kind of words he used. If you, if you only go with Scripture alone, it's very easy to miss that certain terms in the Scriptures carry with them a particular understanding. They may have a different understanding than the way we use the term today. And so they there's a uniquely specific reason why we make sure we understand the Scriptures the original language behind the scripture, and then the culture in which that language was used. And we'll look at that in a moment. Again, I want to remind you that this program has a website called deepinscripture.com. If you go to that website right now, you'll see a picture of our guest who's joining us this evening, Brother James Dominic Brent, OP. He uh, has chosen for his text 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. You'll see that posted on the website. You also see a a more thorough presentation of Brother Brent's um, bio. Uh, Brother James was brought up in the Detroit area. He was teaching and studying philosophy and Thomistic studies at St. Louis University. In the midst of that, I'm, he can describe it for himself later, but he got hit with a two-by-four and discerned his call to the priesthood. Uh, he's recently been ordained a deacon and hopefully, in uh, he says, God willing, in spring of 2010, he'll be ordained a Dominican priest. And so, again, on the website, you can find out more about uh, Brother James. And also, just a reminder that if you go to the website, not only will you see lots of information about the Coming Home Network International, but you can click the link and watch this program live. And so, if you have any uh, questions, please call us or truly send us an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. I'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 740-450-1175. Let's look, though, at this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. I'm always frustrated whenever we can only read just a snippet from an entire book because it's very important to always know the entire context of a book, uh, the reason Paul wrote this letter, why he was writing this letter to the Corinthians. They had some problems at Corinth. And so he was trying to straighten some out. And one of the reasons that they were having problems at Corinth is because not only were they having problems with each other, the Christians versus Christians, uh, some were suing each other. I mean, all kinds of problems going on. But they were having problems with their neighbors and maybe their past friends who had different ideas about 
uh, what was true. And so the influence of other ideas was influencing their understanding of Christianity. And so that's part of the reason that Paul writes this letter, to make sure that they're a faithful witness and that they truly understand what they've received in Christ. And so in this short passage that Brother James has chosen for us, we hear Paul talking about a number of terms which will be important for us, one of which to study, one of which will be the word wisdom. Now let me read that passage. We'll take a break, and then Brother James will join us. This is Paul writing 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio WTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 7th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year we will begin On the Rock, looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, for this program, and I'm joined this evening by Brother James Brent. Hello, brother. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. We wanted to make sure to get you on this program because you've been spending the summer That's at, right. at my parish, St. Thomas. Right, in right here in Zanesville, Ohio. The Dominican Friars run St. Thomas Aquinas Parish. It's been great to be here. Man, there's so much we could talk about. I mean, what are a the lot. Dominicans doing out here in, in Zanesville? A lot. There's a long history of yeah. Dominicans being out here. That's right. Yeah, it goes I mean, back to frontier days. Yeah, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the witness of the Catholic Church in Ohio. That's right. In many ways owes That's itself right. primarily to the Dominicans. Mm-hmm. The Dominicans were the first in Ohio, first bishop, everything. Yeah, yeah. so great history there. For another program, another time, That's I right. hope, because that, that is That's right. fascinating. Thank you for joining us. And you've chosen um, this this little snippet out of First Corinthians, right. uh, which has a lot in it. Why did you choose this passage? Well, as you mentioned uh, when you were introducing me, I've studied a fair amount of philosophy, and so the theme of wisdom is important to me, and this passage has always spoken to me, not just as someone who is searching for wisdom and loving wisdom, but as someone who knows that uh, the world that rejects the gospel, I'm thinking of agnosticism and secular patterns of thinking, also considers itself wise by its own lights and searching for wisdom. And the kind of controversies and disputes between 
the church and the world that are taking place today were also very much taking place in a similar way in St. Paul's Day. And some of those themes show up in this particular passage. Before we jump into it, i got a couple of things I want to throw by you. Uh, Romans one twenty-two. Let me read this little mm-hmm. passage. Okay. Claiming to be wise... Right. They become fools. That's right. And, and my thinking on that, uh, because philosophy is very, very important. I mean, reality is, aren't there a lot of people in our world that, on the one hand, right. will deny philosophy, put it down. Right. But what they're blind to is that they're actually living a philosophy. No, that's that, right. That's right. Everyone has some kind of philosophy or other. Uh, everyone brings some kind of philosophy or other to the text of Scripture. So just by being a human being you have already some kind of take on the world, some kind of understanding of what the world is all about, what your life is all about, how the world is put together, and how people work. Um, so it's it's hard to get out of having any philosophy at all. On the other hand, uh, there are those who think they know it all uh, or think they know more than they actually do. And that very idea that human beings tend to exaggerate their own understanding of the world is itself an old theme in philosophy that goes back to the time of Socrates, who claims, I have no wisdom, and that's his wisdom. (laughs) So, yeah, these are old themes that we're dealing with. And we live in a difficult era, maybe one of the most difficult ever, because most folk going through college today do not study philosophy. Not often. And we have people in very high positions of power, prestige, right. influence, who have not studied one day of philosophy, who think they have no philosophy, but in fact, everything right. they're saying is based on... Absolutely. They're caught in a philosophy that's handed to them by the culture that they're oblivious to, in terms of which they think, in terms of which they try to understand the world. It's the philosophy of liberal individualism. That's yep. what's at work in the political mm-hmm. sphere. And in many ways, if pushed to extremes, it's incompatible with the gospel and with Christianity. Yeah, I know the Pope who uh, was alive and, and uh, in the position of leadership during the uh, American and French revolutions uh, released encyclicals warning right. about the dangers of the Enlightenment philosophies that right. were so influencing the entire world at the time. No, that's right. And they're still influencing us. And I could show you passages from... Supreme Court cases that have statements that are simply a reflection of Enlightenment philosophies gone wild. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then two other philosophies that I'm thinking of that some of our our audience may be blind to their own in to their being influenced by because I, having been a Protestant minister, I know myself from my background is that nominalism, particularly, right. is right. running rampant in our world. Right. And influences so much. And another one is the philosophy of progress. Yes. Which is the assumption that things will just naturally always improve right. and get better and evolve. By our own resources and without the help of God. That's right. A philosophy of progress, of unlimited progress, of the self-sufficiency of human beings and of the human race unto itself. That's pretty common. It's yeah. very common. And nominalism is simply the view that the things around us don't have fixed natures. Uh, They don't have any natures at all. So human beings, for example, don't have a common shared nature. We just simply share the same word. The word human is applied, or name is applied to all of us. Yeah, and uh, behind that is the idea that things are good and bad 
not because in their essence they are good and bad, but because right. God declared them good and bad. He could have right. declared something else good. And, and, exactly. That's right. nominalism. And, right. and we're blind in our culture to, to the influence of these philosophies, which influence the politicians that make decisions. Right. That's right. And, and the only reason I'm bringing all this up mm-hmm. is that's why if we go to Scripture on our own private interpretation, we're right. blind to what we're reading into it. Right. It, it is immensely helpful to know that the context in which these texts are written under the influence of the Spirit is a, is a live context of human beings who have philosophies and who are intent upon searching for wisdom and expect other people to search for wisdom and are, have ways of thinking about that. Um, it's very important. It, it lights up the meaning of the text yeah. for us. It, it really does even make more sense than right. when we're left to our own and then when we're trying to interpret and apply it in our lives, especially right. in difficult issues, and we're blind to the influences that we've been handed to both from our own education and culture. Exactly. Uh, you know, before we get into the, the, the meat of some of this passage, uh, I'd like to clear off one little area. Okay. That, and I just love it because in verse 3, Mm-hmm. Paul said, and I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling, and right. my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but right. a demonstration of spirit of, of power. And I remember when I was a young minister, my first yeah. times in the pulpit, uh-huh. uh, my knees were shaking, and oh, right. I wondered, you know, Lord, why did you call me to this? Because, I, you know, I look sure. at you, you hear your tr- plan to be a right. deacon and a priest right. in a year. Right. It's a major calling. It is, and there are moments of uh, much fear and trembling along the way. <laughs> There's no way around that. And we depend on the work of the Spirit. Of course. To empower us if it wasn't for that. Of course. And we gradually, by the help of the Spirit, learn to abandon ourselves to the Spirit more and more and more as we go. Okay. Well, there's a bunch of things in this text. Why don't you... Uh, Let's begin at the beginning of it, if you would, and and, uh, I'd like you to go ahead and lead us through what you think are the most important parts from this text. Well, let's set the general context. It's the second chapter of Corinthians, so the first chapter is an important background where he's already talking about his gospel, and the gospel is his proclamation of Jesus Christ, or as he says in Romans, it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe this very preaching of Jesus is power for salvation. And he's discussing people in the Corinthian community who are looking for wisdom and, he's, and are divided amongst each other about who they belong to. So he's speaking about those who search for signs and those who search for wisdom. So he's already saying that there's this desire, this search for wisdom that's part of the, the environment in which these listeners, in which the audience lives. In uh, Ephesians... He also talks about the uh, the, the mystery right. of this gospel. And, and and part of the mystery, which is a word also used in mm-hmm. philosophy at the time, was that it wasn't only for the Jews. Right. The, the mystery of this is that by the gospel, by the grace and the cross, um, it's open to everyone. Right. And that is such an important point behind all of this because we got in this group, you know, those that are following one group and another right. we saw. But that the wisdom, if we are blind to our prejudices, sure, that's a form of wisdom. Right. That's a bad wisdom. Right. But we're blind to our prejudices. We won't see the true beauty that's right. of the gospel. And that was part of the, the Corinthians. We're just blind to the prejudices that right. we're separating. No, them. that's right. That's right. 
He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words right. or wisdom. Right. When he speaks about lofty words, uh, that is a reference to ancient forms of rhetoric. So in, the, in an ancient education, uh, it, was, it was thought to be very important that someone learn rhetorical skills and learn how to present things in public, learn how to move the crowd. And ancient society was filled with this. It's, mm. it's kind of what advertising is in our society. It's everywhere. Well, in ancient society, rhetoric and presenting things and uh, moving, pleasing, lofty words is part of life in that world. And it's a, it's a craft that is built in. And Paul himself learned this as he went through his own education. You can see rhetorical forms all over his writings. I was going to ask that. I wondered if... Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I, I was almost going to presume the other, and that was that in his Jewish mm-hmm. training as a Pharisee, would he have gone right. through the same rhetorical training that they right. might have gotten at Athens? Sure. Or no, it seems that where he was raised, that he was exposed to Hellenistic forms of edu- you know okay. Hellenistic forms of speaking. It was part of the education that he received. All right. So and that's interesting he was a very interesting figure for that reason. He has both a Hellenistic education and a, and a Jewish one. So he seems to be quite f- familiar with both, both ways of thinking. This really connects to today when we're used to seeing people on television who have techniques that they use to deliver a message. And uh, we become accustomed to that. Right. And when we don't see those techniques, right. we may not hear the message. A good example, those of you watching TV, is um, you may not realize it, but almost every program done on television has a minimum of three cameras. Right. And people right. you know, move their head. Uh, you, the, the weather broadcasters, the news people do things with their head that they're actually trained to do to... Right. So you're not like a deer in the headlights look in TV the way it used to be. Right. But if we were to do a television program now using only one camera right. and not moving your head, you would immediately notice there's something wrong and you wouldn't hear the message. Right. No, that's right. It's a bit of what's going on here. Right. I think so. He's talking about not that he doesn't use rhetoric. He will use it throughout his letters. But he's talking about a rhetoric of wisdom. So he's not coming to say... Uh, hey, I, I have the, the true wisdom in the sense of a philosophical discovery. He doesn't have one more philosophy alongside of others. And it's an important thing to note that when he says, I didn't come to you uh, proclaiming this testimony of God in lofty words of wisdom or words or wisdom, meaning he did not advance this as a philosophical program or a philosophical theory. Which cracks it's me up also important. because sometimes, um, have you ever been in a debate, brother. Right, I, I don't sure. know if you have, but you know the debating societies in mm-hmm. high school, it's almost as if when you get into that arena, right. you're not really expected that in the end someone's going to win in terms right. of the logic of it. It's how well they presented it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's a, a presentation A, and then presentation B, and then rebuttal A and rebuttal B, and there's a process, right. it's rhetoric, it's done. Everybody celebrates how well they did it, Right. But they may not have heard what was said. Sure, that's right. The substance of what was put forward. Yeah. That's right. He's saying it's the substance. Yeah. No, that's right. That is the key and not the way it was presented. That's exactly right. And in verse 2, he's going to emphasize what is the core 
of right. his substance. Now, we're going to take a break. Okay. We come okay. back. Why don't we look at the core okay. of what he saw was the substance okay. of this message. Sure. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodeyer, your host. I'm joined by Brother James Dominic Brent, and you're hearing this on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodeyer's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodeyer's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grote, your host. Again, I'm joined by Brother James Dominic Brent, a Dominican deacon who uh, Lord willing will, uh, God willing. <laughs> will be ordained to the priesthood uh, next year. And he's joining us. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And just before the break, brother, I suggested you look at, mm-hmm. talk about verse 2. Let me read that to the audience okay. and, then, and then reflect on really the, the significant background to what he's saying. Because sure. he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. That's a summary of his, of his preaching, of what he preached when he was among them. And it's important, I think, not to take it uh, to mean that he only preached the crucifixion of Christ. That would be rather limited, and it would be half the gospel. Um, but he actually tells us later on in uh, the same letter, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, just what he handed on to the Corinthians when he was among them. And he says, you know, he's preached basically the death and re- the burial and the resurrection of Christ, so the saving events of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. That's what his message was, and their power to save, the power of Christ and the power of those events to affect us and change us. And uh, scholars that I've read who've tried to sum up, okay, what exactly does Paul mean here uh, by this? They will look at some of Paul's speeches, for example, in Acts of the Apostles, and they'll notice that in all those speeches, he doesn't simply present the cruci- you know, the, the crucifixion of, of Jesus, he presents the crucifixion alongside the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Spirit and all those saving events. Let me push this a little bit. Okay. Um, only from this standpoint, that is it possible that this particular group of Christians 
you know, in Scripture, mm-hmm. there's always the the part of it that has the the universal trajectory to every Christian that ever right. lives. But right. then there's also a part of it in this original letter that he wrote to these specific people at this time. Sure. That these particular group of people that we may classify as the more charismatic type. Right. We see in chapters 12, 13, mm-hmm. 14 that their right. emotional sides, their desire That's for right. the external expressions right. of their faith, sure. Um, maybe they needed to be reminded of the suffering yeah, yeah. of the crucifixion. That type of approach where you focus exclusively on the gifts of the Holy Spirit tends to lead to a kind of premature glory, that we're, as though we're already in glory, as though we're already uh, redeemed, as though we're already perfected. And St. Paul, I think, is wanting to remind them uh, we're not already redeemed, we're not already <laughs> perfected. Uh, objective redemption is there. Christ's life and death has merited the grace necessary for the salvation of all the world, but for each individual in his own subjective situation, there's a process by which that grace is applied over the course of a lifetime. And although we grow in grace and in glory, uh, we're growing as someone who's still in the flesh. Yeah. So this passage in which Paul is writing to this group of Christians, Mm -hmm. for I decided to know among nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he's at the Philippians, he, he, he focuses on a bit different, That's which right. I, I think is very important for right. the pastor. When a pastor needs to know his congregation no, that's right. when he preached to him, as opposed to just subscribing to some sermon service that's written right. out in Oregon yeah. that he reads to his people that has no connect that's to, right. to an all. Exactly. But in a more universal sense, to every Christian, there's a sense in which we do need to have the daily reminder of the crucifixion of Jesus. Right. In the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. That that's part of belonging to Christ, is crucifying one's flesh or having one's flesh crucified. So it's the ascetical side of the gospel. Yep. It's one side of the gospel, uh, but it tends to be a forgotten side. I, it, it really is an important point in that is uh, we can so quickly jump to the resurrection always that mm-hmm. we forget the cross, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the reasons that the cross, the crucifixion, right. the crucifix, right. has always been an important um, place of devotion for sure. Catholics from the beginning. There's a, a verse in uh, Galatians 3 that I always... I've mm-hmm. always, since position becoming a Catholic, that I've always okay. wondered the mystery behind when, okay. when Paul says, "Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. crucified. Right. I mean, they right. weren't at the crucifixion. No, that's right. But if you look at the verse just before that in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, and the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right. So Paul's presence in their midst, he's so closely identified with the crucified Christ that his very presence among them is a kind of portrayal of Christ crucified. Yeah, because excellent. Paul is with, there with his weakness. He just looks like nobody special. Yeah. So we need crucifixes sometimes to mm-hmm. remind us of the suffering that Christ gave for us. Sure. But the reality is what we need is each other. That's right. In the witness of our lives right. that proclaim. Right. Christ living in us reaches out to each other. All right. 
Again, the background to this is his own experience as well as his understanding of his philosophical talk. We mentioned earlier verse 3 and 4, right. and we kind of uh, looked at it in a bit of a joking way. Sure. Uh, I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling and right. my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of God's spirit of power. But there's, right. there's so much more behind this, isn't sure. there? Sure. The theme of weakness, Paul talks about his own weakness a lot <laughs> in, in a number yeah. of his letters. So, you know, his power is made perfect in weakness. Um, it's part of being a Christian is, as it were, venturing out of the upper room uh, where the Spirit comes to us and going before all the world to claim Jesus is Lord, he's died for our sins, he's risen from the dead, and we don't have any proofs, so to speak, of a philosophically satisfying kind that can force people to believe it. And that's a kind of weakness that we have, that all we can ever do is put our words out there and let the Holy Spirit convict. Um, and that, I think, is a kind of weakness. And it causes a certain fear and trembling to stand up there before an unbelieving world and to say, Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. He's with us, present with us in the church, feeding us with his body and blood in the Eucharist. People will say, that's crazy. Prove it. And it's a tricky thing to be put in the ring like that when you say, well, actually, I don't have any kind of proofs that I can force you, force your intellect to assent. You know, <clears throat> brother, let me make a comment, if I would, about my own experience of Catholicism for okay. a second uh, in, in relation to this, because I think one thing I've seen is in the Reformation, when we see a break away from Catholic tradition, all of right. a sudden we find new traditions usually focused around a person. Mm -hmm. Sure. And the longstanding tradition in Catholicism, in the understanding of the priesthood, uh, is that it wasn't about the priest. No, that's right. It's always imitating Paul in this way. Mm hmm and what I see happened in Protestantism, I gotta be careful here, mm -hmm. but I'm just talking from my own experience, okay. and maybe it's just me. But when the church and tradition, and if you want to call it the guarding wisdom of the mm -hmm. church, was set aside, there was a trajectory towards new traditions being focused on individuals whose ideas mm -hmm. and charisms mm -hmm. and influence guided the day, and the danger was always that when that particular person passed, right. then this tradition would either a new, would have to die away or split right. into new ones, and we still see it today. When right. it's uh, somebody, somebody's ministry, and when that person retires, is his son going to take over right. or a new person? You know. Sure. The difference, I think, in, in the Catholic Church is that highly, let's say, charismatic individuals or people who have been given some great gift, uh, a St. Augustine or a St. Thomas Aquinas who have worked out an elaborate theology or who have preached a great deal or worked out some spiritual doctrine like a St. Catherine of Siena or St. Teresa of the Child Jesus. All of these individuals, no matter how charismatic they may be, no matter how profound their theology may be, after they pass, uh, all of their writings and their lives are subject to the discernment of the Church. Mm -hmm. So no one individual becomes dominant. Every one of them, no matter how awesome they are, and some of them are truly awesome, um, is one among many. 
within the, yeah. the larger picture of the church. And the church has a way through her tradition, magisterium, and through just the flow of time to make sure that no one individual uh, becomes the whole of one's mm-hmm. spirituality or theology or doctrine or the whole of the church. And we see in you know, the Franciscans following St. Francis, all right, mm-hmm. but I don't think he named them after himself. Right, sure. And Dominicans after St. Dominic, but right. Dominic didn't name it. This is the Dominic's no, that's right. ministry. That's right. No, that's right. And both St. Dominic and St. Francis were two individuals yeah. who gave a gift to, to the church. The church looked at, at their lives and recognized something awesome there, but neither Dominic nor Francis became the whole of Catholicism. They yeah. became, they had a stamp, they left their stamp on it in various ways. Because they had a unique Right. charism right. that was represented by how they understood how Christ was calling them right. to live that out. You know, St. Francis in, in a unique living out of the poverty right. of right. the gospel. Right. Dominicans, the, the call to, I mean, from the very beginning, it was a call to teach and preach. Sure, sure. Whereas I think in Protestantism, at least based on what I know about the history and friends of, and interactions that I've had, certain individuals like Luther or Calvin can become Lutheranism, where his theology becomes the whole movement. Yeah, yeah, and we see divide and and division not just between, um, you know, Luther's theology based on his particular, and then there's different right. slants where Bollinger went in one depth, and, and and Beza, and then you got Calvin, and then you got Zwingli. Mm-hmm. All these different groups were individual groups that had no direct connection. In fact, argued with one another. Sure. About how right. they could. Immediately, uh, right. within I think there was within ten years. I think there was a book published, two hundred ways of understanding the right. meaning of the Eucharist. Sure. You know, so. Sure. Uh, but I've always and I've seen this since be, being a Catholic, that not all Catholic priests, bishops, popes, and deacons, as well as this laity, live it out perfectly. Right. But yet, the understanding that behind this very statement by Saint Paul, we see a model. Mm-hmm. For living out, recognizing our weakness, it's not about right. us. Right. In much fear and trembling. Well, no, right. I see behind that the constant need for the fear of God. Right. No, that's right. That's there, um, a need for the fear of God, but also a recognition that one is not um, a kind of humility before one's audience and before uh, the world, that one doesn't always have all the answers, all the solutions, all the problems, uh, to, to all the problems right off the bat. That the community at Corinth is going to struggle. There's This is a big undertaking to found a church in Corinth and to see what the Holy Spirit does there. It's a big undertaking, and it's not, not all Paul's work. Uh, so there's a lot of things to be, to be standing there with some fear and trembling. Um, it's the next verse where I think we can really get into the meat of the context right. and showing how some philosophy helps. He says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So you've got two words here, wisdom and demonstration. And both of these terms are technical terms in philosophy in the ancient world. So wisdom is the is what all the, the philosophers are looking for. Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, Cynics, Skeptics, all of them are talking about and searching for wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. This is what they're looking for. And if the man on the street in the ancient world who would have been exposed to these ideas in various ways would have understood this as kind of the key to a happy life. Mm -hmm. If you have found wisdom, you have found the key to a happy life. You have found what the world is ultimately about, and you have found a way to become a good human being. Because even pagans 
who hadn't been exposed to the light of the gospel could see, some people's lives go well, and other people's lives don't go so well. Well, we would ex- we would explain that. I was going to say, isn't it true that we recognize that uh, that within everyone, uh, the imago dei, the image of right. God that's a part of us, so the person out there that's never heard right. one word of the gospel yet th- right. is still created in the image of God, and sure. there's a seed there that draws them to God. Right. And so you're describing how all the non-Jewish, non-Christian right, the groups of right. Gentiles had within them this desire for God, and they were right. seeking it. A desire for wisdom, sure. For wisdom. But all the stuff you just said is mm-hmm. exactly parallel to a certain extent in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's in so the, the wisdom Jewish literature. audience right. would have had the same history. Sure. Uh, and St. Paul knows about the wisdom literature, and he incorporates it in, for example, Romans chapter 1, where he speaks about the Gentiles and their, the type of light that they had been given, even as Gentiles. They were, there was a law of nature, and they were a law unto themselves this way. So they had a knowledge of good and evil, and they were trying in their own ways uh, to, to work it out, to work out that knowledge that they had been given by God, knowledge of good and evil, natural knowledge, trying to work out, well, what does that mean for us, and how does one live a good life? And these different philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, the Cynics, Stoics, others, would all say, I have found wisdom. See, I have found it. And that's just like today. We've got everyone out there marketing, I have the way to happiness. I've got the program for you. I've got the self-help program you need. I have found the secret. And we see it in all kinds of things, ways from secular, very secular versions with psychology to New Age kinds of neo-pagan sorts of proposals, the secret and all kinds of things. Hmm. Um, yeah, this is a, a kind of a recycling of a very ancient approach hmm. where man left to himself without the gospel is going to look for wisdom because we all want to know, well, how do I live a good life? It's a very natural question that every human being has. How do I become happy? And we come up with different answers to that question. So Paul is addressing that very um, common theme in ancient society, wisdom. And he's saying, now one of the, the other technical term is demonstration. Aristotle talks a lot about this at length and over the course of a number of books. He talks about a demonstration, and it's the term that philosophers use to say that a certain proposition or a principle has, to say that it's been demonstrated is to say that a conclusive proof of its truth and a, con- and a, and a, a perfect explanation of it has been given. So is it like in the scientific method in a way? A little bit. Where the, we move from a, a, just a, a hypothesis to it, it kind right. of shows itself, it becomes a theory, it becomes right. a law. Right. Even in the ancient world, Aristotle's own example of this kind of demonstration would be an eclipse. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you have an eclipse of the sun. What is it that, what is an eclipse? What's the, a demonstration of it? You would have an argument formed of premises and conclusions, and you'd say, well, this the moon enters spaces between the sun and the earth at a certain point, and that's that's an eclipse. So you have a perfect explanation of it and a perfect demonstration. Right. And what philosophers tried to do in their exchanges with each other was give and receive demonstrations. And they, they would all claim, hey, I've got a demonstration. And then people, would, the crowd would gather and they'd say, I want to hear this. Okay, what? let's hear your demonstration. And you see something like this happening in uh, Acts chapter 17. When Paul goes to Athens and he meets with the crowd, in the uh, Areopagus, appeals to the tomb to the unknown God, points it out, and begins a conversation. And a lot of people are interested. They gather around. They say, okay, let's hear what he has to say. And then he says, well, 
what I preach is Christ. And they say, okay, we'll, hear, we'll come back another day. <laughs> so I think that's a frustrating experience for St. Paul. Yeah. And uh, this time when he arrives in Corinth, we know from Acts is right after that. Hmm. That's when he comes to the Corinthians, right after this experience of trying to speak with the philosophers on their terms. And he says, I have a different approach. So the relationship then you're uh, saying is that we have, it isn't that he has delivered this message, number one, based on his own strengths. Right. No. Exactly. Number two, not on his intellect. That's right. No. That's right. He's not giving an argument out of his own intellectual thinking. Right. Right. Nor three, is it merely empty words. Right. Right. But they have, number four, right. been demonstrated. They have been demonstrated, not in the way that the philosophers think, in terms of which they think, as an as a argument from premise to conclusion, but they've been demonstrated in spirit and power. So that's a very interesting thing because the philosophers will say, if you have no demonstration at all, we don't have to believe it. But he'll say, I do have a demonstration. It's just not the type of demonstration that you can comprehend as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. I have a new kind of demonstration, a higher kind of demonstration. I have the demonstration of spirit and power. Mm-hmm. And the fathers of the church, Origen, Augustine, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, when they look at that, they say, well, what is the demonstration of spirit and power? If it's not a philosophical demonstration made up of premises and conclusions that I come up with out of my own head, it is rather preaching along with the miracles and the healings and other things that St. Paul does along with it. And maybe so, maybe the most uh, uh, important demonstration of spirit and power as a demonstration mm-hmm. of that is the, the fact of changed lives. Absolutely. St. Paul talks about that. And the reason I would emphasize that is that sometimes Christians, you know, they want to see God act. You know, mm-hmm. they want to see concrete demonstration right. of the reality of it when, in fact, they're they're walking by faith. So walking by faith doesn't mean uh, that uh, that we aren't seeing the acts of spirit of power demonstrated, right. but is the fact that we've been changed, that sure. our heart and our mind are different. Sure. You know, that's the demonstrations of the reality of this that right. those men in Athens couldn't quite get yet. No, that's right. Because they right. hadn't experienced it themselves. And that's why St. Paul will say that what he's preaching is a kind of wisdom. He'll say this later on. It's a wisdom of a different kind. It's the kind that does change a person's life. And it does open a person up to the action of God. And it does lead a person into a good life, a happy life. And in that sense, it is what the Greeks and the Gentiles are looking for. It is a wisdom. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll, we'll look a little bit at verse 5, because all of this, Paul said, was that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Brother James Brent, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. 
It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm joined by Brother James Brandt. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through 5. Just before the break, uh, brother, I wanted you to fr- kind of close the program reflecting on all of this kind of culminates in this statement, verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right. So St. Paul realizes that when we go forward preaching the gospel and put forward that Jesus is Lord, that he's died for our sins and risen from the dead and has given us the Holy Spirit, that we're not putting this out as a philosophy out there. And so many people want us to, and they often demand, give us evidence, give us evidence, give us proofs, give us proofs. And St. Paul's saying, I'm not preaching to you in lofty words of wisdom. In other words, I'm not giving you philosophical demonstrations of the kind that philosophers do business in every day. But I have a different kind of demonstration, and that's the demonstration of spirit and power, miracles, healings, changed lives, joy, peace, new life in Christ. And this is a way of drawing people, and it is a way of demonstrating that what Paul says is not just an illusion or a fabrication or something like that. Um, and why do we do this? Why do we give this? De- does he give this demonstration of spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God? In other words, if all we could give people was philo- philosophical arguments or philosophical demonstrations, then Christianity, the gospel, would just be one more philosophy among many. And that's how it actually appears to so many people out there today, is that it appears to be just one more idea on the marketplace of ideas. And if you want to pick uh, the gospel, pick your go- pick the gospel. But if you want to pick uh, Buddhism, uh, that's fine, or some New Age uh, thing, that's fine too. Or if you want to go in for a kind of hard agnostic or secularist kind of program, that's an idea too. And the gospel is just one more idea among many. And Paul's saying, um, no, it's not one more idea among many. And I'm not pushing it as an idea or as a theory or as a philosophy. It is truly a different kind of thing. It's wisdom from above. So that if you do come to believe in it, you won't believe in it because of philosophical arguments. You won't believe in it because of evidences that are brought forward. You'll believe in it for a higher reason. God's power at work within you will have brought you to faith. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I remember when I first started examining the Catholic Church. I was a Protestant minister, been right. in seminary, and when I I discovered something about Catholic seminaries that was so radically different than Protestant seminaries. Right. And the Catholic seminaries require the priests to study philosophy right, sure. first. Sure. And I thought that's crazy. Right. I mean, they went four <laughs> years before they get the theology. I didn't yeah. have one course in philosophy right. in Protestant right. seminaries. What do you want to study philosophy sure. for? But then I come to discover the foundational need for us right. to truly understand philosophies, right. even the philosophies of men. Oh, yeah. So that we can clearly understand the right. true theology of God. If you know something about philosophies or the philosophies that were at work in the ancient world, then you'll know 
the context that Paul is talking about yeah. here and that he's speaking into. Let me give you an, another example. If you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, later on in the same chapter, in uh, verse 15, he says, The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That is almost word for word identical to something Aristotle says in the metaphysics. Hmm. Aristotle says, The wise man judges all things, but no one judges him. <laughs> so Paul takes that phrase... And it's changed. Instead of saying wise man, he says spiritual man. So he's saying that everything that the philosophers are looking for, everything that Aristotle promises you, is here in the gospel. You can be a spiritual man where you are in a position of making a judgment about the truth of things and of making a judgment from a very high perspective that the philosophers promise, but only Christ delivers. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there have been Catholic philosophers who have uh, really focused their entire uh, work and lives on using philosophical arguments for the existence of sure. God. You've got Anselm mm -hmm. and you've got others right. that are arguing that. And, and in a sense, on the one hand, they're recognizing their audience, who they are trying to reach right. for Jesus. That's the point. Right. And Paul's in Athens using the arguments, hopefully, that the Holy Spirit will use to touch those right. hearts. But on the bottom line, even in the history of the church, some of the greatest philosophers in the end when they converted the church, mm -hmm. it wasn't lofty words. It was the evidence, the demonstration of that. I think of the one Often. Jewish philosopher, which you could think of his name, who, who was an atheist, right. but in the end converted the church because... He, he, Certainly, Justin Martyr has a, yeah. an account of his own conversion where he was a philosopher, mm -hmm. and he was moving around from one philosophical school to another. He tried Aristotle, he tried Plato, he tried various other things, the Pythagoreans, and in the end, he came to Christianity. He came to the gospel because he has an encounter with a stranger by the sea who introduces him to the prophets and to Christ, and he has this experience of being overwhelmed with joy and set on fire, as he says, with love for the prophets and the friends of God. So here's a classic example of someone who's a seeker, mm -hmm. seeking after wisdom, trying the philosophies of the day, coming to the gospel, and there finding his thirst truly satisfied. Let's, I'm just curious, with, with the, in the, because that's a fascinating story. If I would, let's say we have some in our audience mm -hmm. who might be blind to the way that the, the, all the philosophies around them influence mm -hmm. them. Any advice on how they can cut through that to make sure they're hearing Christ and the gospel clearly? How do you cut through the influence of all well, these philosophies? One of, I mean, that's one of the main services that the magisterium of the church performs for us, is that uh, if we stick with the magisterium and put our trust in their ability to, to keep us on the right path, to keep us with Christ, to keep us uh, submitted to Christ— then we'll no longer be blown about by every wind of doctrine around us, but rather we'll stay true to the gospel that has come down to us from the apostles. But without a magisterium, it's very, 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 very difficult. In fact, I personally could not see a way to try to sort out all the various yeah. philosophies, principles, arguments, distinctions, qualifications, theories, Theology, out there, theologies, theologies that are out there. Yeah. And so it's not a job that one individual can do. And that's why God gave us a magisterium, was to help us as individuals and as a church uh, to sort out a lot of this together. 
Would you, uh, and that is a great gift we've been given, and that's why when we talk about being deep in Scripture, we do it in the midst of the sacred tradition right. and, the, sure. and the magisterial teaching. Is there also a sense that Paul is hitting right the nail right on the head when he says, in the midst of all these voices, keep your mind on the crucifixion, the crucified right. Christ. How is that an important key to making sure that we're really on track with the truth of the gospel? Right. Uh, I think the crucifixion is something to keep in mind because it's the ultimate sign of God's love for us. So when we keep our minds fixed on the crucified one and we remain devoted to him, the love of God takes over us more and more and more. And love, at the end of the day, is going to be one of the most important guides, as it were, to sorting out a lot of this stuff a lot of these ideas that are out there and that come at us, is that many of them ultimately are contra-loving. I mean, they're just contrary to love one way or the other. And uh, I'm thinking of also those passages where, um, uh, you know, that the cross is, uh, uh, you know, the for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, wisdom, but we right. preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly mm-hmm. to the Gentiles. Uh, to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom, wisdom of God. God. Uh, you know, that in the cross we see, which to the philosophers of the world seems stupidity. Right. It seems stupid to the philosophers because we're claiming that God, the omnipotent, omniscient one, comes down and chooses to get crucified. And that seems to make no sense at all. Why didn't he just escape? Why didn't he run away? He didn't have to do it. Why didn't he save us some other way? Uh And so to say to them, actually, it looks crazy, but there's a wisdom here of a higher kind. It's not a human wisdom. That's one of the ways we can see that it's not a human wisdom, is that if you look at it from just a human point of view, it seems really crazy. (laughs) Uh, But in fact, it's Christ. It's God showing us, I have a higher kind of plan at work here. When we focus on the crucifix. Right. It helps us realize our weakness right. intellectually right. in wisdom and our need to depend right. totally on God and His power. Right. And apart from Him, our life would be nothing but fear and trembling. That's right. You are loved more than you can comprehend. All right. Well, thank you, brother uh, James. Right. I appreciate for you joining us. And, of course, we ask God's blessing as you head forth All right. thank back you. to seminary, right? Thank to, you very much. That's right. To the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. A great place yep. to be. It's great. <laughs> And thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. There's a lot of voices out there in our world that try and convince us of other Gospels. And those other Gospels take all kinds of shape and and can seem full of wisdom. But I do believe when put in the focus of the cross of Christ, we see the true power of God. God bless you. See you next week.